0: Actually, my book is not a novel, it's a non-fiction book, but you could be forgiven for thinking it was a novel. I'd like to start off by taking you back to a wet and windy night in October 1975. Shortly after 8.30 in the evening, a car, a battered blue Ford Cortina, leaves a pub in the small Somerset village of Porlock and makes its way slowly and unsteadily up Porlock Hill towards Exmoor. Inside the car are two men and a dog. One of the men is called Norman Scott. The other one is called Peter Keane. Peter Keane has previously told Norman Scott that he's been hired by a mysterious benefactor to protect him from an unknown assailant. The dog, a Great Dane, is called Rinker. But neither of these men is quite what he seems. Norman Scott's real name isn't Norman Scott, it's Norman Joseph. Although over the years he's experimented with a number of different aliases, including claiming to have been the illegitimate son of the fourth Earl of Eldon. And Peter Keane's real name isn't Peter Keane either. It's Andrew Gino Newton, a man known to his friends with ample justification as Chicken Brain. What's more, he hasn't been hired to protect Norman Scott. He's been hired to kill him. When they reach the top of the hill, Keane, Newton, gets out of the car. He says he wants to stretch his legs. And so, too, under the impression that she's about to be taken for a walk, does Rinker. Norman Scott, not quite sure what's going on, also gets out. The next thing he knows, Rinker has fallen to the ground and when Scott puts his hand down to touch her, he finds that his hand is sticky. The next thing he knows, he feels a muzzle of a gun, or something hard anyway, against the back of his neck, and Newton says, it's your turn now. Without knowing what he's doing, Scott runs away towards Exmoor, onto the moor. But as he runs he realizes that he's running straight towards the lights of cardiff on the horizon and that he could hardly present a more inviting target if he tried convinced now that he's going to be killed he decides that he would rather live he'd rather die with his dog than by himself so he turns round and begins to run back towards the car and in the headlight he can see newton keen shaking this gun around, going, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it, over and over again. (laughs) Suddenly, he gets into the car, starts the engine, and drives off back down Porlock Hill. Scott tries to give Rinker the kiss of life, unsuccessfully, and then flags down a passing vehicle. The police are called. When the police come, Scott says to them, It's all the fault of that bloody bloody man, Jeremy Thorpe. He has destroyed my life, and now he has destroyed my animal. This was the first the police got to hear about what rapidly became as the Jeremy Thorpe affair. In my utterly biased opinion, the most extraordinary political scandal of the 20th century. Never before or since has there been a more ineptly executed Murder plot than this. <laughs> Never before or since has there been a hitman so incompetent that he spent two days looking for his intended victim in Dunstable in Bedfordshire, only to realize that the man actually lived in Barnstable in Devon. <laughs> it's also a story in which a fuse lay smouldering for more than 10 years before bursting suddenly and very dramatically into life. Back in 1961, Jeremy Thorpe was the rising star of the Liberal Party, the newly elected MP for North Devon. He had a friend called Brecht van der Varta, who lived in the Cotswolds and bred horses. Van der Varta had recently taken on a young stable boy called Norman Joseph. One day, Vandavarta told Joseph that a friend of his, an MP, was coming to visit. And by way of preparation, he asked Joseph to come and shave his back while he was in the bath. Feeling this was a bit out of the ordinary, but not liking to say anything, Joseph duly lathered him up and set to. The next morning, he was mucking out the stables when this tall, good-looking man in a long overcoat with an astrakhan collar came up and introduced himself as Jeremy Thorpe. As Thorpe would later say of Joseph, he was leaning over a stable door. He was simply heaven. Before he left, Thorpe gave Joseph one of his cards and said that if he was ever in any trouble, he should come and see him at the House of Commons. Six months later, out of a job, having had a nervous breakdown, just been discharged from a mental hospital, a very distraught Unhappy, Norman Scott turned up at the Palace of Westminster with his dog called Mrs. Tish. Thorpe could not have been more welcoming. Indeed, he asked him if he'd like to come and stay that night at his mother's house in Surrey. There, the three of them ate boiled eggs for supper, and Joseph, feeling rather exhausted by the rigours of the day, asked if he could go to bed. He got into his pyjamas, was in his bedroom, when Thorpe knocked on the door and asked if he was all right. Much to his embarrassment, Joseph started to cry. At this point, Thorpe, always ready with a sympathetic ear, went out and came back in with a towel and a tube of Vaseline. (laughs) So began what was by any standards an extremely tempestuous affair. At first, everything was tranquil enough. But it wasn't long before the fault lines started to appear. Increasingly, Joseph felt that he'd been taken advantage of by Thorpe. But all this would probably have been forgotten if Thorpe hadn't done a very stupid thing, although at the time it must have seemed terribly tri- trivial. He agreed to stamp Joseph's national insurance card, but that legally made him Joseph's employer, and when the affair petered out a couple of years later Thorpe stopped stamping his national insurance card probably forgot all about it but without it Joseph was stuck in a kind of limbo he couldn't get work and he couldn't claim benefits by now Thorpe had become leader of the Liberal Party however he was still lacking in something that he felt every political leader needed to have a successful career a wife In the summer of 1967, Thorpe asked his friend and fellow Liberal MP Peter Bessel to come to his office in the House of Commons. There, he told an understandably surprised Bessel that he had decided to get married. I'm quoting now from Bessel's account of what happened. But what about the sex, Bessel wanted to know. If I close my eyes and grit my teeth, I'll manage it somehow, Thorpe told him. However unenthusiastic Thorpe was, he was not easily deterred. It's a bloody bore, he told Bessel, but if it's the price I've got to pay to leave this old party, I'll pay it. A year later, in May 68, Thorpe married a young woman called Caroline Alpus in the private chapel at Lambeth Palace. Much to his surprise, Thorpe found that marriage suited him. What's more, he found that he cared deeply for his wife, Caroline, and he he was delighted when she gave birth to a son, Rupert, in April 1969. Everything seemed to be looking up. And then Norman Scott, as he had become, had a recurrence of the mental problems that had dogged him all his life. He began to grow more and more aggrieved about the way he'd been treated by Thorpe, and what was far worse, more and more talkative. In late 1968, Thorpe finally snapped. One evening, he once again asked Peter Bessel to come to his office in the House of Commons. And there, according to Bessel, he said, Peter, we've got to get rid of him. What? said an incredulous Bessel. Are you thinking of killing him off? Yes, said Thorpe. Bessel was badly shaken. Jeremy, it's ridiculous, he said. There is no other solution... Thorpe told him. Bessel began to protest that this was ridiculous. No sane person talks of murder, he protested, and certainly not two MPs in the House of Commons. Thorpe, however, was adamant. All too aptly, in the light of what followed, he said, it's no worse than killing a sick dog. (laughs) Then came another disaster, far worse than anything that had happened before. In June 1970, two years after they'd been married, Caroline Thorpe was killed in a car accident on the A303. Sometime before she died, Scott had phoned her and told her about his affair with Thorpe. Thorpe, whether rightly or wrongly, felt that, she, that, that Scott rather, had had some part to play in the death of his wife and grew more and more aggrieved. In early 1974 the then Prime Minister Ted Heath called a general election. He lost but only narrowly and he thought that he could probably cobble a coalition together with the Liberals so Thorpe was invited to come to number number 10 for crisis talks. Actually no deal ever materialised and Harold Wilson became Prime Minister and although Thorpe could never have known it this was basically to be the height of his career. From then on, things hurtled downhill at breakneck speed. And so we come back to the events of October 1975. So far, the press hadn't got wind of this, but then a story appeared in a tiny newspaper called the West Somerset Free Press entitled The Great Dane Mystery, Dog in a Fog Case Baffles Police. And where the West London Free Press led, other larger papers soon followed. A year later, the Sunday Times published two letters that Thorpe had written Scott back in the early 1960s. One of them was fairly innocuous, but the other one caused a good deal of comment. Thorpe had written, Bunnies, which was his nickname for Scott, can and will go to France. Yours affectionately, Jeremy. While this didn't offer conclusive proof that Thorpe and Scott had been lovers, it was certainly not the way in which MPs normally addressed their constituents. And as far as the Liberal Party was concerned, it was the final straw. Thorpe had little chance to, but little choice but to resign. But far from quenching the flames, this only fanned them. Two and a half years later, in August 1978, Thorpe was arrested and charged with conspiracy and incitement to murder. The two most serious charges ever levelled against a sitting MP and two other men were also charged with the conspiracy to murder. The trial of Jeremy Thorpe at the Old Bailey in May 1979 has gone down as one of the most sensational in British legal history. Indeed, even before it began, it was being hailed as the trial of the century. Thorpe was represented by a comparatively unknown barrister called George Carman, who'd long dreamt of making a name for himself in a big, high-profile case. Carmen had also developed something of a reputation, but not necessarily for the reasons you might expect. A colossal boozer and an equally colossal gambler, he'd once lost so much money playing blackjack that he had to sell his house. On the morning of the 8th of May 1979, this trial of Jeremy Thorpe started in number one court at the Old Bailey. And over the course of the next two and a half weeks, Carmen proceeded to tear the prosecution witnesses to pieces. But he had an unlikely ally in the shape of the judge, Lord Justice Cantley. Throughout the trial, Cantley also lost no opportunity to stick the knife into into the prosecution witnesses. And as for his summing up, it instantly became the most notorious summing up in British legal history. I now turn to the evidence of Mr. Norman Scott, Cantley said. You will remember him well, a hysterical, warped personality, accomplished sponger, and very skillful at exciting and exploiting sympathy. He is a crook. He is a fraud. He is a sponger. He is a whiner. He is a parasite. Not altogether surprisingly, Thorpe and the three other defendants were found not guilty of all charges. But what happened next was, if anything, even more extraordinary. Although Thorpe had been found not guilty, everyone behaved as if he'd been found guilty. Shunned by his friends, cold-shouldered by the Liberal Party, he retreated to the mansion in the Bayswater in Orme Square that was owned by his second wife, Marion. But there was to be one last final twist to the tale. When Thorpe died two years ago, all his successors, as liberal or liberal Democrat leader, attended his funeral at St. Margaret's, Westminster. And there they stood with heads bowed in front of Thorpe's Union Jack-draped coffin, a touching demonstration of party loyalty or, I'll leave the choice to you, an unusually blatant example of British humbug. For years, I'd been fascinated by the Thorpe case, but I couldn't find a way into it. And then one day... I had an extraordinary piece of luck. I met someone who said, oh, do you want to meet Norman Scott? And so I went down to meet Norman Scott, and we proceeded to have an extremely bumpy relationship, which has, has however, culminated for me very happily in the dramatization of my book with Hugh Grant and Ben Whishaw. Many strange things have happened to me while I've been working on this book, but one of the strangest of all was taking my two young children to see Paddington 2 about two or three months ago. Paddington 2 also stars Ben Whishaw and Hugh Grant, and every time Paddington Bear opened his mouth, I kept hearing... Norman Scott. And what made it particularly strange was that it's hard to imagine two characters more completely separate. You've got Paddington Bear with his innate belief in people's decency and Norman with his equally firm conviction that every piece of misfortune that's ever befallen him is someone else's fault. I'm not quite sure where that leaves us at the end of this bizarre story. But all I can say for certain is that never again will I feel the same about Aunt Lucy's special marmalade sandwiches. (laughs)